Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And handling the board for us today is heat-sensitive John Dunn. Answering the phones for us is, who do we have answering the phones? Eileen, I think. Eileen, Irene is answering Irene. the phones for us. If you want to join a conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and she'll get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or send us a text at 813-433-0885. So I don't know about you, but this record-breaking heat has got me thinking a lot about climate change. We have talked a lot on this show about some of the biggest challenges facing the Tampa Bay area, such as affordable housing and transportation, but none is bigger and more intractable than climate change. And today we have someone with us who is actually trying to do something about it. Whit Remmer is the city's of Tampa's first sustainability and resilience officer. And last month, Mayor Jane Castor released a plan that Whit worked on for a couple of years to deal with climate change. Welcome to Wavemakers, Wit. It's wonderful to be back. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for being here. So uh, as, as Tom said, just in, in June, the city um, released its 150-some page um, climate and resiliency plan, um, action plan. And let's talk about that, Wit. It's got three major goals. Mitigate, adapt, and engage is, is the large umbrella for more than 150-some action steps, but they all kind of fall into those buckets. Let's talk about that, starting with mitigate. What are we talking about when we're talking about mitigating? Sure. Um, well, just a little backstory on how people think about climate change, or sometimes they, they don't think about climate change, right? Climate change, I understand, is a is a very kind of big existential, but but also in many ways, very in our face issue right now. And when you talk to people about climate change, um, often the conversation starts with how climate or weather or uh, shocks or stressors are affecting people in their everyday life. So mm -hmm. I started working on climate change in Louisiana, a state that is built on the oil and gas industry, but is kind of ground zero for a lot of the most significant threats of climate change. Right now, it's under one of the most significant heat advisories in the country. Uh, we all know the, the impacts that Hurricane Katrina brought. Um, and, and sea level rise uh, is occurring in that area of the country faster than anywhere else. Uh, and that's due to a combination of the land sinking and, and the Gulf of Mexico rising. And so when, when we talk about climate change to folks in Louisiana, often we start with that conversation. We talk about levees, we talk about water. Uh, and then once you kind of meet people where they are, then you, that, that can open up the conversation to other things. And maybe you don't start with uh, reducing your carbon footprint, but maybe you talk about lowering your energy bill. And so, you know, the way that this plan is laid out, we've got we to gotta reduce emissions. That's the first goal. We have to reduce emissions. And we can do that through a whole um, uh, combination of options, whether it's more energy efficiency or more renewables, right? That's kind of- And that's mitigating. That's when mitigating. When you're talking about mitigating, you're talking about reducing emissions. That's what that is, is trying to minimize the effects 
of our, our impact, human impact on climate change. That's exactly right. And yeah. then ADAPT is kind of uh, responding to the effects of climate change that we already know are here. And then importantly, taking care of the community along the way. And so the engagement. And when you say we, are you talking about we as the city or we as a community need to reduce our uh, carbon footprint? Th this plan was written um, by the city with the community's help. And uh, that's probably a nuanced answer in terms of what the city can do and what the community can do. Some cities have a lot more leeway in terms of the types of regulations that they can implement. Well, now um, we're limited, of course, by our state government. Is that a big part of it or? It, it, it is, in fact, it, it's, a, it's a huge part of it. Um, the state two years ago passed a, a preemption law. Uh, th there are many, many preemption laws that um, that don't allow the city to take regulatory authority on, on many issues, plastic bags, regulating trees on private properties, uh, inclusionary zoning, and, and now uh, energy to an extent. Right. And so that preemption law basically said that cities can't pass rules or regulations, building codes that restrict the or, or dictate the type of energy that's delivered by the local utility. And so, you know... So what uh, does that mean in practical terms? What does that mean... Like what can't you regulate? What can't you require? You know something that's what been in the, the city news. Require? Something that's been in the news lately is uh, uh, some of the, the regulations related to multifamily housing units and and uh, California and New York, whereby by a certain year, no new gas stoves will be allowed in those okay. those uh, apartment complexes. We, we couldn't do that, for example, here. But what what I will tell you is that what this made us do through this planning process is really focused because what the preemption law uh, doesn't say anything about what the city does with its own own assets, its own facilities, Got its it. own money to an extent. Because you're creating your own carbon footprint that could be reduced. Yeah, you just can't require anybody else to do anything. Right. Yeah, and we, you know, proportionally, our carbon footprint is is about 3% of the total of the community. But um, we have a couple of pretty big point source emissions, uh, our, our water treatment plant, our wastewater treatment plant, our McKay Bay Waste Energy Facility. So, you know, in, in effect, we actually have a lot of work cut out for us, even within our own business units. And so that's where we're going to start and that's where we're going to make change. And hopefully by leading by example, we'll show people what they can do. So I have to say one of the things that I thought was most interesting about this plan, and I went to the section first, was the section on governance. What does that mean when you're talking about governing for climate change and resilience? And what I like about the plan is that just what you're saying is that it, what it means from what I understood, what I read is that that is something that you think about in every department, whatever department, the city department is, you're going to consider climate impacts, right? So is that sort of what that means? I mean, that's the ultimate goal. That's the goal. The, the, the city the city is in your neighborhood, either a city employee or a contractor, probably every day. Someone's mm -hmm. picking up your trash, someone's fixing a pipe, someone's uh, um, um, working on a street. Enforcing codes. Enforcing whatever. codes. So yeah. the goal here was to um, empower city departments, give them the tools and the resources, yeah. and ultimately to, to provide some um, kind of some leverage. Uh, to, and direction. And like direction. you're saying, this is the direction that we're going in as an organization and every department should be thinking about it. That's how you all, that's how you, that's how you get success in an organization. And, and, and there's two things to this. We're spending 
a lot of money at the city level right now because we are growing rapidly. And so we are bonding out uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of infrastructure projects. So, you know, I'm trying to work with city departments to make sure those infrastructure projects are squeezing energy efficiency the best they can or or, uh, deploying renewables, that when they're building this infrastructure, they're doing so with climate um, in mind, that mm-hmm. might mean it's stronger, it's higher, it's more resilient, more robust, more redundant. And importantly, uh, that that the community understands what's going on in their neighborhood well in advance of the project and understanding the benefits of the project, even if there's some disruption to the neighborhood. So what are some of the things that the city is going to do to mitigate? Are you going to an all-electric uh, vehicle fleet or what are some of the steps that the city will take and to mitigate their carbon footprint? Sure. So uh, we are transitioning our fleet, starting again with kind of that low-hanging fruit, that small, mid-light-duty size vehicles. Uh, we've got Leafs and Bolts. Uh, you, some of those are wrapped. You'll see them driving around the city with with nice kind of uh, messaging on them. But ultimately, again, we're not going to wrap every car saying this is this is a green car. I mean, this is this is the direction the auto industry is going. So certainly, fleet transition. Now, I'll tell you, it'll get harder when you get up to the to the garbage trucks and things like that. Fire but, trucks, fire trucks, uh, ambulances, police cars. Sure, you guys. Uh, the police car fleet alone must be huge. It is, and you know the the the. The um, police department, um, I've talked to them about things like electric uh, motorcycles, and uh, I think they're open to that. Uh, Some of the benefits we've seen from our colleagues in other cities like Orlando, um, my colleague, my former colleague over there, Chris Castro, always likes to tell a story about how, you know, uh, his police department was a little bit reluctant on the battery operated uh, Harleys or, or, or motorcycles. And what the officers found that were assigned to the, this mount um, were that these bikes were incredibly fast. They had uh, great pickup speed and they didn't have all the exhaust, the hot pipes and the noise next to them that the traditional motorcycles did. So if they're doing parades or Gasparilla, sometimes it's fun to kind of rev up and get the crowd going. But um, from a safety perspective and, and frankly, from a localized pollution perspective, they weren't having all that exhaust right there on the parade route um, uh, for their events over in Orlando. So you mentioned that in Orlando, they had a little bit of uh, reluctance or resistance. And, and you must encounter some of that yourself within the city of, of- People have to change what they've always been used to doing. And so is it part of your job is to, like, you know, convince them? It is. Um, I, I think that that's true of city employees and trying to um, trying to sh- share the good word with the community. I mean, I think ultimately uh, we've taken a, a, an approach where we're not trying to, to dictate or mandate or regulate, over-regulate these issues. I mean, one thing that's really helpful at the city right now when I enter into the conversations with these departments is there's a lot of money. And there's a lot of money that they're already spending and a lot of money that I'm helping bring to um, these departments because of the incredible resources that the state and federal government are providing right now. So people's attention, it's, it's a lot easier to get their attention when you can say, hey, I've got uh, an opportunity to show you a tax rebate or a grant program that can help your project uh, significantly. Um, 
If you're just tuning in, we're um, talking to Whit Remmer, who is the sustainability director for the city of Tampa. And we're talking about the city's new um, climate um, and uh, resiliency action plan. If you'd like to join the conversation, if you have a question for Whit, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. And I have to say, we had two questions this morning before we even went on the air, which is really unusual. So wit. People are paying attention. They care about what you're doing. This is one of the first questions that we had. This is from Phyllis. Um, and she's pointing, pointing out that the city of Tampa is spending millions of dollars on stormwater infrastructure, yet the stormwater technical manual has not been updated in years. Um, and the land development code is allowing residential lots to be redeveloped with impervious surface area ratios and no on-site Stormwater capture, very technical, but point being, this is about stormwater infrastructure and is the manual being updated as you're doing all these improvements? What's yeah, the answer to that? Whit? It's a great question, uh, and thanks for following along on these important um, issues, Phyllis. I can tell you that uh, I think t Thursday this, this week, City Council uh, brought up the stormwater manual um, for... Uh, us to respond to it at, at the city and we are updating the stormwater manual it's uh we're, we're working with a, a really great consultant group right now to do that so that that is happening now you call that was that in your mitigate bucket or your <sighs> adapt bucket that, that would probably be an adapt bucket because okay. uh that's probably so what's really interesting that i've learned about civil engineers and uh kind of my, my 10 plus years of doing this work is um civil engineers are incredible and they've been doing this environmental work for so long, um, but civil engineers also like to be very, very kind of certain of the types of calculations that they come up with. So they, they, they want to know how much rainfall, how much um, uh, rainfall needs to be moved in, a, in a, a, a given amount of time through a certain size pipe. And often the way that civil engineers design projects, uh, because they wanted this certainty, was looking at historical records. So how much rainfall usually falls here? Here are the calculations for the new job. And we'll we'll build in a little uh, degree of uncertainty to to account for kind of the unknowns. There's There's really kind of been a call in the civil engineering profession to take a little bit more risk and kind of over-design these projects, even though you don't know what the future rainfall might be in this particular area. But we know that it's probably going to be more intense uh, and, and more frequent, uh, but also it could be drought for a couple of years. And so you got to make sure that you're designing pipes that also can be high and dry for right. a couple of years. So um, one other thing I'll say on the stormwater front is that we're not waiting for the technical manual to be done uh, to start to implement some of these really um, innovative, uh, but but also common sense ideas. I'll point to a project down in the South Tampa Peninsula called McDill 48, and it is a stormwater relief project that also has a water quality component. And it's uh, on an ELAP property, which is um, kind protected of a, land. a protected yeah. land that uh, we worked with the county. And we it's it's a it's right in the middle of the, the South Tampa Peninsula. Not a lot of folks know about it, and um, it was fenced off for a long time. And soon you will be able to go use this property, which will be used for stormwater retention and water quality. But there's also now going to be a boardwalk placed around it nice. with, with educational signage. And this idea of overlaying kind of recreation with the built environment and providing educational opportunities and really integrating as more and more people move here and as green space becomes more and more precious, we've got to find kind of innovative ideas to overlay recreation with with existing city assets and resources and, and mcdill 48 is a really great example of that 
Now, you had mentioned that you are working with various departments on trying to get them to um, change the way they do things. So I wanted to be uh, see if you can give us some, a specific example with the Hannah Avenue project, a very big construction project that the city is building in East Tampa. What kinds of things were you able to influence in some of the things that are – this is, could be almost a, a pilot project uh, for the city. Here's a brand new thing, and it's going to reflect our new – climate change approach? What kinds of things are going to be built into that project? Sure. So I think um, first and foremost, the city has a, a code, um, an ordinance that requires any city funded building over 5,000 square feet to go through a, a lead analysis. That's leadership and energy and environmental design. It's a kind of a, a certification process. M most folks are familiar with this uh, mm -hmm. with, with office buildings. And uh, so the minimum requirement was lead silver. Uh, so the city was was required to comply with that and, and happily did so, but they also went above and beyond. So this particular project, um, which is a big project, will have solar on, I think three of the buildings, the, the, I know the primary building will have one, and that's a 1.4 megawatt solar system. That'll be one of the largest rooftop solar um, arrays in the city of Tampa. Cool. We're still working on the convention center. We had to go back and do some structural analysis on that. And a lot of folks like like to talk about the convention center. Um, so, so rooftop solar. And what's really interesting about that is we paid for uh, and, and budgeted for the rooftop solar project in it um, prior to the Inflation Reduction Act passing. Uh, which is <laughs> a poorly named bill right. for the largest investment in environmental and climate initiatives. Well, that's that, how they got it passed. Right. Of <laughs> I think that's I, that when you were on the show uh, last year, Kathy uh, Castor was here. She was talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. and, and so we we didn't have the benefit of, of knowing what was in that bill prior to um, Hannah commissioning solar panels. So when that building is online and that, that system is up and running, we're going to take the line item from that Han Avenue project, which was um, close to $3 million in solar, which, by the way, will have a return on investment period in about six years. We'll repay uh, that, that, that particular um, line item. We're going to take that to the, the U.S. Department of Treasury, and we're going to submit that bill. And for the first time in history, a city will actually now be able to get a rebate for investing in solar. We didn't know that was going to happen. We were going to do it either way. But now... We're going to be taking that that invoice and getting uh, close to nine hundred thousand dollars back from the U.S. Department of Treasury because of the provision that that Representative Castor put in the IRA. Previously, if you invested in solar on your house and you had a tax burden, you were eligible for between a twenty six and thirty percent tax credit. Now that's thirty percent for at least the next decade. Uh, but cities, nonprofits, churches, the YMCA, none of those were eligible because they were nonprofits or they were municipals. Uh, municipalities, and, and so they didn't have a tax burden. The federal government is now rewarding uh, folks across the entire spectrum uh, with this kind of clean energy incentive, and that, that's a really exciting development. You're listening to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom on WMNF, and our guest is uh, Whit Remmer, the uh, Director of Sustainability and Resilience for the City of Tampa, and we're talking about the city's climate change um, action plan. If you um, have a question or you want to tell us what are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint or address climate change, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. So what we were talking about mitigating and the different things that the city is doing to mitigate its own 
um, carbon footprint, but there's also other things that you're doing to mitigate. One of which, which I think is really super cool, and we haven't really talked about much on this show, is the EV, the electric um, bike program. So tell us a little bit about that. That That's a mitigation as well as engagement because you're engaging the community in it. How does that work? What's the status of it? And is it going well? Let's talk about Tampa's carbon footprint so we understand the role that transportation plays in that. So one of the first things that I did when I started was update. And, and thankfully, someone um, um, prior to, to me at the city had, had the foresight to actually do what's called a kind of a carbon footprint or a greenhouse gas inventory back in 2009. Mm -hmm. So when I started, it was actually at a, at a point where we had reached 10 years and we wanted to see what the current carbon footprint was. And so we ran the numbers, uh, some great researchers from USF helped us with this. And here's kind of what, what the results said. Around 45% of carbon emissions in the city of Tampa come from transportation. So that's tailpipes of cars and trucks. 45%, nearly 50% comes from our, our vehicles. And the other 50% more or less comes from the energy that buildings use. Okay. All right. So let's let's stay on transportation. We got forty five percent coming from tailpipes. What can the city do to help reduce those emissions from tailpipes? Well, uh, the federal government now has tax incentives for you to go buy an EV, so that's that's great. Uh, but you want a personal level. I mean, we we really have struggled with transportation in the city for many many years. Um, last mile is, is a kind of a critical component of that and, and certainly shorter trips, providing the ability for residents to have shorter trips mm -hmm. that, that don't require loading up in a car is, is something we really wanted to focus on the here. Ten, what do they call it? The five minute, 10 minute city that the, you can get everywhere from your house in five to 10 minutes. Either walking or biking. Walking yeah. or biking. Yeah. yeah. And if you're outside biking today in July, it, it can be pretty hot and possibly maybe be discouraging <laughs> to hop on a bike. And, and, and self-power yourself to, to your next meeting or, or to go out to lunch. And so the city um, replicated what, what was a very successful program that started, I think, in Denver mm -hmm. uh, to provide vouchers to citizens for e-bikes. We started kind of with a pilot phase. They're doing um, a couple hundred of these across different categories. So there's income qualified for regular e-bikes, and then there's... Uh, regular vouchers for all income levels for, for regular e-bikes. And then there's also a cargo bike program for folks that might need to go shopping or something like that too. And those sold out. The program was extremely popular and those vouchers, the transfer. How many vouchers were there? Um, I'll have to go check from each bucket. I don't know off the top of my head, but um, you know, the mobility department came to me and they said, Hey, is this something that the sustainability department would help support with funding? And, and, and so it was really a multi-department effort and launch. And it was really fun to be part of the lottery where we pulled those numbers live. Okay. But it was a, a Rough order magnitude, 200, 500, 1,000. I have no no clue. What was the, the number of bikes? Do you know what the vouchers were? 50? I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, it was it was tens of thousands of dollars, and I think the vouchers ranged from 500 to, I mean, it was hundreds, okay. it was hundreds, hundreds of bikes. Hundreds of bikes. Hundreds yeah, of that's bikes. what I was just trying yep. to get about, how many was it? But, yeah. And as as you uh, get more people to, to buy electric bikes, and I, have, I own an electric bike myself, you are also trying to make the streets safer to encourage people to right. uh, walk and bike more. to walk and bike. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I did. I had hoped I could, you know, drop my car and just use an electric bike. But frankly, the streets are not that safe. Many of them are. They're getting better. So but they are way better. They are way better. And so I assume that's also part of your your plan is to try to encourage people to to, to walk and bike. 
Yes, and I, um, you know the, the folks over at Walk Bike Tampa have done some some really good work fixing some what work loopholes and kind of the the sidewalk code. You know, Tom, you'll have to remind me. Do you ride your e bike on the sidewalk or on the street? On the street. On the street, and that's yeah. the that's where the the law that's where legally you're supposed to ride it, right? Because those Correct. things can get pretty fast and they can, can be dangerous in and of themselves. Oh, right? if you're riding an electric bike on Bayshore and there's a, a lot of people jogging or whatever, it it so I yeah I, I ride on the street. So you know, as more and more. People. Unless I can't, you know, <laughs> unless I can't, then I only do. But yeah, it's, it's just generally not safe. We ride on the street. Generally, yeah. I ride in the street. I think there's going to be more friction, uh, if, at least in the short term, until we kind of figure out. Right now, it's like more friction. You mean people are still opposed to? You're, you're finding people are still married to their cars and opposed to investing in infrastructure that is not. Well, too many motors don't want to share the road. Let's yeah. just say it. I mean, they they just don't. They they think bikes should, right. don't belong. There. If I ride in the street, yeah, people flip me off and beep at me like I'm breaking yeah, the law when I am, in fact, not. <laughs> I think there's friction kind of um, uh, um, physically still uh, with a lot of people using a very valuable kind of right-of-way space. And then there's also friction, I think, in ideals and cultural friction, too. So I think there's friction going on in both ways. And, and uh, as more people move here and kind of demographics and, and culture changes, I think we're going to see that for a little bit. But ultimately, I think hopefully we'll kind of cross over um, the bridge here shortly and um, – and folks will start to get more comfortable seeing these scooters and bikes on the road and understanding how to how to maneuver around yeah. them. So um, uh, transportation hits so many different levels, as we've talked about. This plan is something that is to think about in every department in the city. Land use planning, right? So when you want a five-minute city, that is about land use planning. Uh, so how is that figuring into the climate change plan in terms of creating zoning that allows us to be able to get around without having to necessarily drive. Is that part of the, the future? So this is a little bit of a, a paradoxical issue um, because to get the type of transportation networks that you want in kind of a dense urban area, you, you need the density to justify it, right? And um, then there's this other side of the equation that says, you know, we are in a kind of a, uh, a hazard-prone peninsula and so how do you justify saying we need density to support low carbon, better transit options, but also with that density comes risk, right? With mm -hmm. evacuation and with um, living in a, a coastal hazard zone, more insurance premiums, higher insurance premiums. So this is, this is really a balancing act. I, I will say this, though. I think there is room to grow in Tampa. I think there's especially room to grow in kind of districts that we've identified that are are, um, are, are, are relevant and appropriate for that growth. I think we, we can build in coastal areas, um, especially when you do so with, with kind of advanced or even just now, the building code in Florida is the strongest building code in the country. And FEMA regulations are requiring higher and higher elevation. I know, I know folks don't love seeing a traditional 1950s ranch house <laughs> next to an, a house that's elevated uh, seven or eight feet. But that is the market signal for adapting to climate change. Yeah. And um, I think that what you'll find is when, you know, the Fort Myers Beach rebuilds, it's not going to have the same type of culture and charm. But the next time a storm comes through, they're going to be a lot better prepared uh, with those houses that are elevated and built out of concrete. Um, what about, we were, we were talking about electric vehicles and transportation. What about electric vehicle charging stations. Is that something the city can um, install more of those? How does that work? 
So the city does have uh, several electric vehicle charging stations open to the public and parking garages um, throughout the city. We are working on installing um, uh, additional stations. There will be public stations at the New Hannah Avenue building. And uh, I know a lot of my colleagues in, in other cities spend a lot of time on EV master planning. I'll tell you, you know, the penetration rate for EVs is still pretty low here in Tampa. It's under 5%. Under 5 That's uh, pretty... Well, Tom, you are. You're a pioneer. <laughs> you're an early adapter. Uh, it's a key of soul, so I'm not very cool. <laughs> you got, you got to see the hair on this guy. He's very cool. Uh, um, so, you know, we're definitely keeping an eye on that. Our mobility department's working on that. I know we just submitted, I think, a, another grant for that. The, the, uh, let me just kind of back up and give my understanding of kind of the EV charging network state of current state of play in the inflation reduction act. And, and frankly, the, the, um, the, the infrastructure law, there was a lot of money for the federal government to deploy EV charging along highway systems. And that's, that's a lot of commercial charging, but also a lot of that federal interstate system. And then cities, it's a little bit murkier. There is some state money and, and certainly um, and federal money for cities to deploy that. But I think a lot of that is going to be driven by market dynamics. Um, one thing the city is doing is updating its, its land use and zoning code to say, if you're building a new apartment building with 100 units, um, we're going to require at least 5% of the parking that's required for that to be EV ready or EV capable. And what that means is we're not necessarily going to require the developer to install full-pledged charging systems, but they're going to have to make sure the breaker box is capable of, of, of updating uh, and making sure that higher voltage is, is ready and available to come online. And also putting the conduit underneath the sidewalk and the landscaping and the parking lot because that's that's pennies on the dollar uh, for a, a big multifamily project, a new new apartment building. Uh, but if you have to go rip up the trees and the sidewalk and the landscaping uh, after the fact to go put in these chargers, it just kind of disrupts everything and ultimately costs the HOA or the homeowners more money or the renters more money. So we're, we're again, we're, we're trying to find the right approach here to not overregulate, but also be helpful as uh, people do move towards EVs. And I think that you're going to see the adoption rate oh, continue yeah. to go up. Well, they're going to, I mean, they're going to stop making the combustible engine vehicles anyway. And the prices are the going down. Years. So, you know, it's an inducement to, for people to, We've but the more charging stations would help all of us who have electric charging stations. The cities are, are, are terrific and they're free by the way. And some developers are putting them in already because they see it as helpful to, I guess, attract customers. The Midtown development, uh, 275 and Dale Mabry has and a huge number of EV charging stations all free. So that's very encouraging. Maybe we'll see more of that. So, so I do, I do want to take issue with something that you, you said, which is you said that the EV charging stations are free. They are free to the customer, user, free to, to the, the user. Yeah. But um, there is still a meter on those, mm -hmm. and uh, someone is still paying the, the utility to use those. And that is uh, something that I think that we're working on changing um, because we need the language and the code to be able to charge for for EV, but um, you know it's it's uh, important that we kind of level the playing field and that um, we don't give folks that are fortunate enough to drive an EV, uh, you know, also free fuel, free free fuel. Well, at some point, <laughs> Tesla is going to uh, basically uh, dominate the entire. Uh, electric vehicle charging network that they've created, and we'll start charging a lot of money for it. But, you know, that's oh, capitalism. We've got tons of calls or, or emails and, and calls here, so we want to get to some of these right now. We've got Leela and Brandon who's been holding. So, Leela and Brandon, you are on the line. Uh, what's on your mind? 
Oh, I just wanted to make a couple of comments. I tried to go down to the um, town hall and meet um, or find out about this new booklet that you put out, Mr. Remmer, Remmer, about the, you know, conservation and the environment and, um, you know, energy supplies and so on and so forth. So I'll be coming down for the county commission meeting tomorrow morning, and I'll probably run by that, your office, to get that. But what I wanted to bring up was a couple of things. On the morning show two weeks ago, they talked about um, these huge shopping centers that are being vacated by the uh, the big stores like Sears. And we have one in Brandon, and the Sears store has been gone, I think, for five years. And I've been fighting um, a new library going in at the corner of Lumsden and Parsons because it's a beautiful pastoral uh, oak tree canopy. And uh, it's one of the few green spaces we have left. And um, that program talked about how the shopping centers are being used as multi-purpose, which is great. And for your battery um, charging of the cars, that would be another hub to do that while mm-hmm. the kids are at the library. Put a library in the shopping center at Sears here. And, um, and also the um, animal shelter centers, that's a good place to do that and be able to adopt animals. And most malls have indoor playgrounds for children that the air conditions that would mm-hmm. also get the kids out. The other big thing is our homeless population don't have shelter. So uh, a lot of them spend their days in the shopping center because of the air conditioning. So we could do a multifaceted involvement because we already had the concrete, the asphalt is heating up the earth. So why would we put in another 100,000 square feet of concrete in the middle of Brandon at the place that we're most um, backed up in the afternoon with traffic to Falkenberg, you know, um, you know, with all this uh, release and then the oak trees are the, the good guys. They take the carbon dioxide out of our environment. It's like an oxymoron. So, so Leela, you're suggesting sort of like this is uh, this is risk from the city, so there wouldn't be able to have any. There's no jurisdiction over. Yes, I just wish this, I'm not an urban planner, but it just makes common sense. But I will bring that up at the county commission meeting tomorrow in my one minute segment. There was an article about Brandon Oak Tree Park and the library, and uh, they're trying to build a this huge library that we don't need. We have a beautiful library that's in a shaded area that's a commercial district that our homeless can actually partake in they're going to go and build this huge thing that we don't need and it's detrimental but at the same time what he's talking about what i'm hearing you say is there's so many positive things the solar panels the things like that but why create more concrete that's unnecessary is what i'm saying yeah so you know jim mitchell said paid paradise and put up a shopping center that's um basically what we've done and now we need to kind of utilize what we already have and not make more well Lila, that makes sense when as Whit was telling us 55 almost 55 percent of our carbon emissions come from buildings used by buildings so um that uh, reusing that instead of tearing down and building more would make sense actually construction itself is very um energy intensive Lila, thanks for the call we appreciate and it I should, I should probably point out that the action plan is available online um, if you want to get a copy from City Hall. I'm sure it will make that available to you. But you, if you Google, you know, Tampa Climate Action Plan, you'll find it pretty quickly. Let's get to some of our emails. We have an email from Annie Ellis, who hosts the amazing sustainability show on, on Monday mornings. Um, and she says, um, we're at 30% of tree coverage in the city of Tampa now. Um, that is the minimum of trees for a healthy city at this point. Um, Will the change of House Bill 1159 in 2019 that removed the city tree um, protections to the state reduce, I'm sorry, I'm not reading this well, but um, uh, the mayor is now committing to 30,000 trees planted by 2030. Um, 
That's a lot of trees. Going to make a big difference in the city. Um, tell us about that, Durbin Forest. Yes, so... Um, Took us 40 minutes to get to trees with. <laughs> Better than Cafe Contempa last week. Um. <laughs> yeah, just to explain, uh, uh, Witt uh, appeared at Cafe Contampa. I'm on the board of Cafe Contampa, and about all the questions were about trees. I thought we had a great, like, don't we have, like, the best tree canopy in the world, or didn't we get some recognition for that? So let's let's start with that, because <laughs> we actually, for yeah. an urban city, have a, a really good tree canopy, even though we the had a... The state is a, trying a, to stop it. <laughs> well, so so we did have a, 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 a significant decline from the last time that we measured it um, five years ago, and in some ways, that's not unexpected for several reasons. Yes, the I think the most prominent reduction in canopy happened in South Tampa where we're seeing a lot larger lot sizes. And uh, yes, there are now restrictions on how much the city can can regulate the removal of, of trees. There are other reasons why our canopy is 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 kind of diminishing as well. Um, the tree canopy is aging and a lot of the laurel oaks that were planted kind of in post-World War II develop, uh, developments uh, are kind of reaching their their end of age. So, mm -hmm. tree, if you look at pictures of the South Tampa Peninsula in, partic in particular from 70, 80 years ago, it was not a beautiful tree canopy. It was kind of lowland flatwood pine. I mean, the canopy that we're enjoying in some ways is a product of development, which is great. And uh, tree canopies can kind of go through cycles and we are definitely at a dip right now. We are, I will tell you, I said this last week too, planting a tree is one of the hardest things that I have tried to figure out how to do in, in Tampa because two realities exist right now. The, the current tree canopy is located in large part on private property. And I think that as housing footprints continue to get bigger and those trees that were planted alongside the house 50, 60 years ago, start to prevent, uh, present some hazards to older housing mm -hmm. stock that that's currently there, that canopy is going to start needing to shift to the public realm, to the right of way. So we at the city, uh, the mayor committed to this 30,000 tree goal, which is, is important for two reasons. Number one, it extends beyond her administration. So we're trying to make this a, 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 a non-political, non-you-like-the-mayor-don't-like-the-mayor uh, kind of issue. Everyone, for the most part, likes trees if they're in the right place at the right time. Uh, and and secondly, 30,000, there is there are several conservation initiatives, as, as the emailer pointed out, that point to this kind of 30% threshold. We need at least 30% of kind of land and tree cover to have a, a, a diverse biology and, and ecosystem. And so our goal, uh, Kayla, my sustainability coordinators here, our goal, we talk every single day about how do we get more trees in the ground uh, and importantly, keep those trees alive uh, for that first year, that establishment year period, because that's when they're most vulnerable. So finding spots on the public right away, that might mean parks or that might mean along sidewalks. But again, Tom, these trees are competing. We come back to friction with everything else in the right of way. You're competing with walkers and regular bikers and cars when you're on your e-bike. Trees are competing with water pipes and electric lines and sidewalks, sidewalks too. Yep, we've and got one in front of our house that we, we actually yeah. it was it was it just kind of grew in, in our. Oh yeah, right oh, away. We, we had two oak trees grow. Volunteers. But, but we to about. your point, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe thirty years ago, I got a tree from the city's program, planted it, very proud of it, took a photo with my young toddler son, and uh, it died. 
I felt bad, you know. <laughs> It felt terrible. I just want to say, I do the gardening at our house. <laughs> so this tree that's in our right-of-way is healthy. <laughs> but it is, I, I, I get your point, though, because, yeah. you know, you want to plant that tree and you want it to live. And I want to get back to Annie's email. I'm sorry, because I butchered it. And her point was that the state law was, there's more trees being removed. And also she wanted to point out that there's a symposium this Thursday, July 13th, at the Julian B. Lane River Center regarding community trees and the urban forest. So, um, Annie, thanks for that. We really appreciate that. I want to get to some more of these emails because we have a bunch of them. So this is somebody who is asking about, um, uh, says, Oliver Stone recently released a documentary suggesting that nuclear is a good alternative. A lot of people are saying that these days. Um, people are more open to relying on nuclear. She's a, I'm, I'm aware of the fear of, this is a he, aware of the fear of the possibility of a harmful accident. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think renewable is a good way to go, but some have said that it doesn't provide enough energy needed. That's Jeff. I, too, am a product of the 70s and the No Nukes concert, so um, still opposed to nuclear. What do you think, Whit? So I will say the transition to renewable energy is, is um, it's a, it's a difficult pathway. Um, renewables have a, a lot of, of drawbacks, uh, especially as battery technology is, is still evolving to kind of be able to handle the amount of energy that's needed when when renewables aren't online. So renewables and battery backup are definitely great. Uh, there are going to be uh, things that I think are, are going to require um, other types of fuel sources probably longer than we'd like to admit. Here, here's what I'll say on, on nuclear. I think there's a, sh a huge shift going on in the yeah. nuclear industry that is moving towards much, much smaller nuclear um, uh, types of facilities. So if you kind of follow Westinghouse, which is a, a big kind of nuclear company, and everyone might might have read about the, the Georgia nuclear plant that is billions of dollars and years and years over budget, those types of projects are probably not going to happen anymore. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a position necessarily on nuclear, but I can just tell you from where I, I sit and watching the industry, I think you're going to start seeing kind of these smaller size nuclear plants that have a lot more safety, a lot more redundancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, built in that will will garner a lot less kind of public backlash um, for what that's worth. Okay, then we have an email from Gib who basically says um, nobody should be allowed to remove trees from their property when they buy it. And Gib, I'm okay with you. I'm good with that. Um, then we have, let's see. Um, Another question. You know, a, a tree is just like any other. It should be treated just like any other asset. It, it needs to be cared for, pruned, maintained, just like pumps and pipes. They need to have regular maintenance. So, um, you know, when you buy property, private property rights are, are, are available to us here. So, you know, I, I agree there are there are people that that would like to argue that they should you know, you, you get the tree on your, your property. You got to keep it. Um, but but at the I, very minimum understanding that that trees can be expensive to maintain and pre and present some significant liability and hazards is also important. Oh yeah. They are I just had my trees trim. It was not a cheap thing to do. It's 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 expensive. Um uh, we have an email from somebody, David Bryant, who um, we appreciate as a very loyal listener, and um, he's loving the show, and he wants to know, what um, are there any cities that you're looking to for best practices in climate resilience? He's wondering if you're looking at Amsterdam. He thinks we might need to build a huge floodgate at the mouth of Tampa Bay eventually. But um, any cities that you're turning to as, as a benchmark? Sustainability and resilience officers around the country kind of uh, learn from each other. Um, 
Miami certainly has been on the leading edge, especially with their resilience bond, which is a hundred year bond to, to raise roads and, and put resilience measures in place. I've been to Amsterdam. I've done that tour. It was one of the first things I did when I started getting into that kind of adaptation space. Um, Amsterdam politically and ge- geographically is a very different um, city than Tampa. And I think that we are going to continue to look for adaptation projects. They probably won't look like um, the the Thames River barrier or, or some of the other kind of flood walls in some of those European cities and and or, or even closer to home on the Gulf Coast, the hurricane storm surge and risk reduction system that surrounds New Orleans now. It's a multi-billion dollar levy. You know, I think that... Uh, Florida's beaches and bathymetry of the Gulf is going to pre- would prevent uh, present some significant challenges for for building levees. Now, as an alternative or, or floodgates, uh, things like living breakwaters, elevating homes, um, providing kind of space for water, living with water. I mean, that's really the concept that the Dutch have imparted on. Uh, Americans working in this field is, you know, it might be a levee or a flood wall, but but the concept is how do we live more uh, uh, harmoniously with water and understand that sometimes water might need to come in and as long as it moves out in a couple of days, uh, th- that can be okay. Um, I, I don't think we want to get to a place where we're trying to over-engineer or over-correct uh, what Mother Nature's ultimately going to throw. We okay, saw so what happened to the Everglades when we tried to do that. And so that's a perfect segue into this, the last few minutes or 10 or so minutes that we have. I, I'm talking about adaptation because I think that that's so interesting. We've been talking a lot about mitigating, but there are changes that are coming and there's nothing that we can do about it. So are we talking about managed retreat? You, you were saying well, you think we can still build in coastal high hazard areas or should we not? I mean, what kind of, are we going to be elevating roadways? Do we all need to just go move inland? What does adapting look like? And, and as a friend of mine asked me to Chris ask Chris Sherman, you, we have a question Chris, from Chris Sherman. asked, uh, how can you uh, help Tampa General be more resilient? Yeah. Which is on an island and it's very close so to the water. So that ties to adaptation. What do we do about this infrastructure that, how do, how do we adapt to what's coming? So um, let's start with with Tampa General because I know that they've got um, a whole suite of resiliency and and um, hazard mitigation measures that they deploy sp- specifically when when a hurricane looks like it's it's making um, its way to, to us. I, I know I think last year for the first time ever they deployed their their aqua wall their barrier which was a a floodgate. Um, so that that really? is and there's I, I I can share some pictures of that. Maybe you guys want to put that on online or something. But um that that's the first time they deployed that technology. And it's, I don't know, probably an eight or 10 foot high flood barrier that they deployed around some of their, their um, lower parts of their critical infrastructure. The other thing they did was, was elevate a lot of critical infrastructure off of the basement floor. So okay. their electrical, their, their, a lot of their engineering and stuff like that was all elevated. So elevating is a big thing. You also mentioned managed retreat. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that managed retreat is a conversation that I think is happening in some places, um, especially in Louisiana and up the in Keys. the Mid-Atlantic and the Keys, that doesn't seem to be um, a a super um, prominent thing here on the west central coast of Florida right now. We're Does building it, a lot. We're building a lot in south of Gandy area, uh, which is very close to the water. Um, so yeah, we're not retreating at all. Do you look at the maps like when you're when you're talking about adapting like the flood maps? I've done some of the NOAA 
estimates looked at the, it's a kind of a fun little map to look at. It's kind of weird that I find that to be fun, but I do, to see, you know, toggle it and see like over a certain number of years, how much sea level rise, what actually is underwater. I mean, are you looking at that in terms of like where we develop and, and I mean, what does that mean for property values and that sort of thing? Is that something that you guys are thinking about at the city? Uh, definitely have a ton of that data and use that to guide our decision making. I, I want to be clear um, that there's storm surge, which comes from hurricanes, which is kind of an immediate wall of water. And there are adaptation and building code measures that are designed for storm surge, uh, tear away walls, things like that. Uh, elevation. And then there's sea level rise, which mm -hmm. is more gradual and um, and also has a lot of uncertainty built into it. So Janet, I'll ask you if you're uh, Stephen Benson, our planning director, or, or someone that works at the city in codes and zoning, and I'm the sustainability guy, and I come to you and I say, by the way, here, here's what the NOAA maps say on sea level rise. They say that in Tampa, we've already experienced between six and eight inches of sea level rise in the last 50 years. Okay. And by 2100, we'll experience between two and eight feet of sea level rise. What do you do with that? Right. How do you design? Run. <laughs> how do you design infrastructure with such a huge degree of uncertainty? And a lot of that will depend on how quickly we mitigate, how how quickly we reduce those those carbon emissions. Um, but ultimately, this is a challenge that I, I, I don't have the answer to on the show today. Um, but it's something that we we certainly spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think the answer will probably come down to doing something uh, in the middle that 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 um, is both effective but also cost-effective. So we only have a few more minutes left, and I did want to ask um, what you think the average person can do to adapt to the situation we're in now. I mean, I bought an electric vehicle. That's whatever. That what I could do, but what else can people do? Well, well, you said adapt, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that literally and say, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think insurance is really important. I think that if you live in Tampa, especially on the South Tampa Peninsula, especially if you're not in a floodplain, buy flood insurance. That's when it's cheapest, right? If you're in the middle of the South Tampa Peninsula flood zone X, you should still have flood insurance. I think it's just great peace of mind. And if you can afford it, it's usually 500 bucks for the year or something like that, which which can be a lot of money for people. I get that. But um, I think that that's really important. So understand your risk, understand your evacuation zone. Your evacuation zone is different than your flood zone. So I think knowledge, understanding, and information is really the, f the first thing that people can do. Certainly, if you're in a position where you can buy an EV, uh, I think that's that's great. I think the technology uh, is going to be getting better and the, the price will be coming down. Um, you know, planting trees on your property is great. Um, from a solid waste perspective, making sure you get your recycling and the recycling cart and your trash and the trash cart. Listen, folks, if you don't know if it can be recycled or not, just, just throw it away. Here's the great news. If you throw it away and it ends up in the blue trash can, we're going to take it to our McKay Bay Waste to Energy um, facility, and we're going to incinerate that trash that you didn't know if it was recycling or not, and we're going to make renewable energy out of it. We're going to make energy, and we're going to put it on the grid because that's considered a renewable energy okay, source. Okay, so you don't have to feel bad about that when in doubt, throw it out with our recycling. You, you should feel much less bad about throwing it out and knowing that it's going to generate power than it clogging, contaminating. contaminating, clogging up the recycling stream. Okay, good. Cause yeah. that's what I'm doing these days, yes. but like, um, cardboard, aluminum, light glass, those you're pretty good about. You can always put those in recycling is the plastic that, that throws me right. Not all the plastic is recyclable. 
So that's right. Especially the plastic bags. The worst thing that you can do is put your recycling in a hefty garbage bag and drop it into your recycling bin. Um, I want to get back to uh, so somebody wants to know if there are any fruit trees going to be in that 30,000 trees that are being uh, pla- uh, planted, that 30,000. Charles Parker's asking that. I, I suspect we'll get some fruit trees out there. Um, I know it's a, a bumper crop of mangoes. I've been eating mangoes for the last three weeks. Can't get enough of them. Can't get enough. The only um, problem with fruit trees is rats. I'll just throw that out there. It, it is it is yeah. a it is a problem. Um, we've got an email from Rick in East Tampa who says we see Tampa's future involving involving very well canopied parks, soil kept in place by correct plantings. Um, current management practices seem out of touch with this vision. Will retraining of our park stewards be key to this future? I don't know about that, but what's I'm actually so thrilled about this question. Um, the city uh, right now, no one have a couple minutes left. Um, the city right now is um, is working on has de- de- deployed already the the first AmeriCorps environmental stewardship program ever been sponsored by a city in the state of Florida. So we wow. right now um, have 17 young. Um, and and old men and women out in uh, the city of Tampa that are community ambassadors. They pick up trash. They plant trees. Uh, it's called the City of Tampa Green Team. Uh, it's an AmeriCorps program. Uh, we just hired the second class of this, so we starting the program again August first, and there'll be ten full time people that are out in the community every single day picking up trash and understanding um, kind of the the hurdles and opportunities of planting trees. And they work directly with our Parks and Rec Department, and they are constantly in a circle of learning from each other. Uh, whether these be Parks employees that have been on the city um, with the city for 15, 20 years, and then maybe some of these, this kind of younger generation that's giving a year of their life to the AmeriCorps experience uh, and the green team. So that's been a really, really exciting program that we've we've started at the city. We also have an email from um, someone who wants to know um, how you, this is Bubba, Bubba, another regular listener. Thank you, Bubba. We always love hearing from you. How do you deal with the deniers, like the people who are, saying poo-pooing all this and it's saying it's necessary. Yeah. You know, again, find, meet people where they are. Um, I, I say, um, you know, I think almost anyone can agree burning, burning coal <laughs> um, seems like it would be hazardous to the, to the mm-hmm. air quality. Um, you well, know, I know, I know I'll get hit with, oh, but mining's bad. Mining precious minerals is bad for the, for the soil. Listen, there's, there's no silver bullet for any of this stuff, but um, I think it's what we're doing is constantly trying to find um, better ways of doing things, finding the ways that work, constantly uh, asking ourselves where we can do better, following trends and science and case studies and, and always growing and getting better. And I think that's what it's about. Um, with just a few minutes left or a minute or so left, you, we had an interesting conversation when we were preparing for the show and you talked about people getting to the point where they can actually in real time track their energy and water use, sort of the way we do with our our Fitbits and wa- Apple Watches now. Tell us about that. How does it, so that you can be like, ah, maybe go, I better unplug something. Yeah, I mean, I think in this culture that people are obsessed with metrics and measuring things, uh, whether it be their health and fitness or their calories or whatever it is, um, electricity, I think, is going to continue to get more expensive and uh, probably water is too. Those things are intricately linked. And I I, I think, and this is probably a a personal uh, um, 
opinion that that you know more and more folks are going to want the ability to to monitor their energy use at home. It's already happening if you have solar. People love pulling up their app and seeing how much yeah. solar they generated. I think understanding uh, your energy bill is is a critical piece of our climate plan. And if you go on and turn to page fifty six, we unpack what a Tico bill looks like, and uh, I think that's a critical thing. Great. And with that, we are out of time. It's time for. Wow.